This is episode 46 of Extraordinary Women Radio. Welcome to Extraordinary Women Radio. I am your host, Cami Gellner. Women are being called to live with voice, vitality, and vigor. Each month, join me for wisdom-filled interviews with extraordinary women living out loud and making a difference in our world. Their stories will uplift, inspire, and spark your own purpose-driven journey. Hello, my extraordinary women friends. Today, I am so excited to bring the sixth and final contemporary 2018 inductee to the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame, Gail Shetler. It's a great interview and just in time for the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame induction ceremony this coming Wednesday, March 28th. This series of interviews has just been so much fun, and I've been honored to have the opportunity to interview these extraordinary women. They've had such wonderful stories to share and such wonderful wisdom to bring into the world. They have been change makers for sure in our state of Colorado and in the world. Gail's current focus is helping women run for governor and U.S. Senate roles, and I can't wait for her to share what she's been working on in this space. Gail was the first woman to be both Colorado Lieutenant Governor and State Treasurer. She narrowly lost the election to be Colorado's governor in 1998. Since then, not one woman has run for governor in Colorado, and we're going to talk about that today. I think times are a-changing. Prior to working for the state, she was involved in founding the Children's Museum of Colorado, a truly magical place. And in 1976, Gail joined the organizational group, which would file for a national bank to be located in downtown Denver to serve the needs of small businesses. After raising the $2 million capitalization required in 1978, she helped found the Women's Bank in Denver. In 1983, Gail was named Executive Director of the state's Department of Personnel under Governor Dick Lamb. In 1986, Gail was elected State Treasurer, where she served two terms managing the state's assets. In 1994, she was elected Lieutenant Governor. She founded a group called Women Electing Women, supporting candidates running for governor and U.S. senator roles. Her latest venture, eGlobal Education, promotes travel to business people and corporations to, de to develop international business experience, knowledge, and contacts. Let's meet Gail Shetler, a 2018 inductee to the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. Well, welcome, Gail. I am so pleased to feature you on Extraordinary Women Radio today. Thanks, Camille. I'm very, very excited to be here. And first of all, I want to congratulate you for being a 2018 inductee to the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. What an honor. Thank you. It really is an honor. There are so many deserving women, so I feel very flattered. Well, I think you certainly fit right in there. And I'm, I'm really excited to be at, for the induction gala next week. It's going to be a lot of fun. And um, I'm hoping, hoping I get to actually meet all of you who I've got to interview on, on the, the, the podcast here. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Great. Well, I hope that you'll come over, find us, and uh, introduce yourself because we would like to meet you also. That would be fun. That would be lots of fun. So it's been 20 years since you ran for governor of Colorado, 1998. And in that same year, Dottie Lamb, who I have also interviewed here on Extraordinary Women Radio, ran for Senate. And what's amazing to me is that no women have run for governor or U.S. Senate since then, 20 years. This year, Colorado has right. three. I, I personally think it's very shocking. 
Yeah, that, that blew me away. That number really blew me away. And this year, Colorado has three women running for governor. Why do you think it's taken 20 years for women to step up and say, I'm running again? I'm not, I can't really answer that, but I have some speculation. I think one of the things that happens with women is that they, um, they don't put themselves forward. They usually wait to have somebody say, you should run. It's a really good idea for you to run. You're qualified. You're the most qualified. You should run. Men, on the other hand, stand up and say, here I am. I'm running. So they don't wait to be asked. Women, they culturally tend to wait to be asked. And I, the thing that's exciting to me about watching what's happening this year is the huge number of women around the country who are simply standing up and saying, enough, I'm going to run. I care about politics. I care about issues and I'm going to run. So I think there's been, I hope, a sea change, but it is pretty shocking that it's been 20 years. Yeah, I was really shocked by that. And I was looking around at some statistics this morning, and it was the Emily's list had some interesting st- statistics. During the full 2016 election cycle, 920 women contacted Emily's list, which is an organization that recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. And that was a record year, 920 women in 2016. And this blew me away. Since it doesn't election, sound like many. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And since Election Day 2016, more than 34,000 women have reached out about launching a campaign. I mean, what a tremendous number, right? I think that is what, that has, that's what has me very excited about this year. That, And I think it's it's a combination of things. I think... There's been sort of a major shift to grassroots politics. I think Donald Trump has driven uh, lots of women to run for office. They don't like his attitude towards women and the way he treats women, and they don't like his policies. And so women are highly motivated to do something. In fact, I talk to so many women, young and old, who say, I've never been involved in politics. I've never wanted to be. I have to do something now. So I just see a huge shift towards grassroots organizing, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, um, people saying, if I don't do it, who's going to? I'm going to stand up. I'm going to organize. I'm going to do it. It's, it's that fire. When women get all fired up to, to make some change, they really do step into action. And I'm excited about it as well. I think it's, it's a very exciting time for us right now. Um, why do you think it's so oh, I look at the go go ahead. Ahead. I look at the race in Alabama, the Senate race in Alabama, And the reason that Doug Jones won, which was quite remarkable, is because African-American women have been quietly and very energetically organizing for two years. And he would not have won that race had it not been for African-American women. I think there's so much power there when women organize. And I think we're going to see a big change in this country. And I think women are natural organizers, don't you think? I do think so. I think women do it very well. They organize everything from their families to uh, the women's march with a million people. Right. Right. And and like and and overnight, right? <laughs> overnight. Well, social media has helped a lot, but right. it does take somebody to stand up and say, "I'm going to do it. I will set up the account. I will um, email everybody I know. They will email everybody they know." But it just sort of it's like this explosion of interest in doing something, standing up when you care about an issue or you care about what's happening to the country or you care about all these millennia when women have 
suffered silently the abuse that has been dished out to them. And I think when people say, when women say enough, they really turn out. It's, it's good. It's good. So why is it important that women run for office right now? Oh, so many reasons. First of all, we're 51% of the population, and we only have 22% of the United States Senate. We only have um, 12% of governors, governor's offices. We have around 18 to 20% of the uh, U.S. House and most state legislatures. We're just not represented, and we have issues that we care about that don't get, don't get talked about unless we are at the table. And it can be everything from children's health care to, um, to families to the minimum wage, all those issues that make our lives different and better. And then there are, there's another, there are many reasons, but another really important thing that's going on in the United States Senate where there are only 22 women out of 100 senators, those women across the aisle get together for a dinner about once a month Republicans and Democrats, to talk about issues that they can work on together. They don't get involved in partisan politics. They build relationships. They're there to solve problems. I don't see the men doing that. And I think when women take leadership, they're focused on solving problems, and they're focused on issues that make a difference to their families and to their communities. It's not um, who can have the biggest ego. It's not I'm scrambling for leadership. It's not, I'm Mr. Tough Guy. It is, how can we solve problems? How do we compromise? How do we get together? How do we build relationships? Women do that very, very well, and they do it just naturally. It's happening in the U.S. Senate. I see it happen in the state legislature. It makes a very big difference. It totally makes a big difference. I, I think we have, that's another one of our, our core talents is that collaborative nature that we have and reaching out and working together and looking for ways to solve problems together. And I, I think that makes a huge difference in how we can actually start making the difference in the world that we want to make. And um, it, it really excites me that that's happening at the Senate level. I think that's a tremendous story. It's a, it's a very important story. I think one of the other things that women do just automatically is look for ways to include people who think differently or have different lives, different cultures from them. And the only way you can be successful in politics is to look for ways to look, look for common ground, look for ways to compromise, because there is never a solution that's going to work for everybody unless you include everybody. So I think women just naturally are inclusive. We do that in our schools, we do that in our communities, we do that in politics. And how do you think that's going to change our country in the long term? I think over the last maybe 25 or 30 years, we have come to a place, sadly, in our political culture where ideology has taken over problem solving. So rather than figure out how you can work with somebody who legitimately has a different point of view. There are too many groups, organizations, lobbyists, and politicians who say it's my way or no way. That's really scary to me because you can't solve problems that way. Years and years ago when I was lieutenant governor, one of my jobs was to come up with a cleanup agreement for both Rocky Flats and the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. Mm -hmm. We, there were 
least 50 different constituencies who had been fighting for years and years and years over how to do it. And what we were able to do was to list all of the things that we agreed on, which was about 80% of, of the cleanup, and then start focusing with teams of people from different points of view on solving the remaining problems. And we did it in six months. I think that it's so important to A, recognize that people have different points of view, B, um, really acknowledge that those can be very valid points of view, even if they're different from yours, and then C, figure out with the other people how you can get together to come up with solutions that will work for the vast majority of constituencies. That's, we, we have gotten so far away from that, and we have to get back to compromise, to listening to other points of view. We have to stop screaming at one another, accusing one another of being deceitful, of lying. Um, it's just it's time to really have conversations and policies that are inclusive as opposed to ideologically driven. Yes, I can't agree more. And I think the the toxic environment that we've found ourselves in has to shift in some sort of way. And I think one thing that I like about your story that you just shared there is that you started with making the list of things that you could agree upon, right? It's like, here are the things that we agree on so that we can actually, and, and you start to discover there are a lot of things that you can agree on. And then start to tackle the, the tough challenges. So I like that approach. It seems really powerful. Well, you can put aside the things that you agree on because you don't have to keep talking about them. You come back to them at the end and you know, verify that you still agree. But it's so easy to get lost in the weeds. And what you really have to focus on in solving problems is where are the disagreements and where are compromises that can resolve those disagreements. Mm, nice, nice. So with so many women expressing an interest in running for office, I'd really love for you to share a bit of your own experience of running for office in 1998. What were some of the biggest lessons that you learned, especially as it pertains to standing up and putting your voice out into the world? You know, that can, that can be a little bit scary. Uh, well, it's very personal. Right. Uh, you are, you're taking a huge personal risk, and people will tell you, there's nothing personal about this. I'm not supporting you, but it's not personal. I like you. Well, you know, it is personal. And one of the really hard things is to keep saying to yourself, okay, I feel this personally, but that's not going to stop me. I'm going to keep moving forward. And if this person isn't going to support me, there are going to be thousands of others who will. Those are the people I'm going to rely on, not the people who want to tell me all the things that are wrong with me. I had one person I thought was a really good friend say when I asked her for her check, um, say to me, well, I'm not going to support you because you can't win. Um, so, you know, wow. you move on. You have other friends who are, I have one really good friend, uh, Judy Wagner, who was an inductee two years ago in the Women's yeah. Hall of Fame, who has always been there for me. She is the person who always talked me into running. She's the person who was my finance chair. She's the person who was there to console me when I felt terrible. It really helps to have some friends who are always there for you. So that, I guess, is one of the lessons. Make sure you have people you know absolutely you can rely on. You can lean um, back. Another sort of interesting, 
thing that happens, and it, it happened 20 years ago, and it probably happened 50 or 60 years ago, and it's happening today, is there's always, if a woman decides to run for top office, there's always a man who will say, I'm better than she is. I'm going to run too. Regardless of whether that man is qualified or not. So when I ran for governor, I had been the state treasurer. I had been in the governor's cabinet. I had been lieutenant governor. Um, I had won three statewide races. And there was one person, one man, who was a state senator. And had so he had won a Senate district. He had never run statewide. And he was sure that he would be better than I was. He even said to me, you know, why don't you run as my lieutenant governor? Mm. And I said, what? <laughs> what? I've won three statewide races. You've never won anything statewide. What do you mean? I've had responsibility way beyond what you have ever done. Um, but there's always some man who's going to say, I'm better than a woman. A woman can't win. So I'm going to save the party from her. And you just have to say, forget that. Right. Nonsense. Um, you pull your people around you, and, and I went on to win the primary by 10%. You just you pull together everybody you know, and you keep plugging along, and you do everything you need to do to win. There's, you never give up. There's huge amount of resiliency that takes to be in politics, right? There's a huge amount of resiliency. Yes, it's it's, and the the things that make you resilient are often the little things where you have to say you gulp, and you say, I can't believe somebody just said that, and then you put that in the back of your mind and you make yourself go on. And again, I I, I keep saying this to women: you never ever ever give up, never give up. And keep and going. you help women today step into politics and and help them strategize and how they do that. What, what, what do you teach them about, or how do you teach them about resiliency? Well, um, actually, the women who are running today are so smart, so capable. They're so much more qualified than I was. They've had so many more experiences. They've learned a lot of that already. I think what I can do for other women is to help them just talk through those things with them. When when they're feeling down, um, we can talk it through and talk about how you deal with it. When they're thinking about strategy, we can talk about our life experiences and what we've learned from them, how different the world is today, even from 20 years ago, and how to navigate in that world. I think it's, I think it's very personal. Mm-hmm. And when you're running, for, a woman running for governor, and there hasn't been a woman running for governor in 20 years, I do think it's helpful to be able to talk to the only other woman who's ever done that. Absolutely. Because when, you, when you're running for office, as I said, it's very personal. You're taking a huge risk. You're putting yourself out there for all to see you succeed or fail. And you're, there are very few people who've done that. So I think it's always helpful to talk to somebody who's actually been through the same experience. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would agree with that. So what about the, you know, we all have that inner voice that shows up for us. And I'm sure when you were getting ready to run for governor, you had a little inner voice that popped up and said, what are you doing? Why are you running? This is crazy. Did you get that at some point? Well, I never thought it was crazy. I knew I was the most qualified person to run. Okay. Um, I had a lot of support from previous governors, and it never never occurred to me that I wasn't qualified to run. 
what the nagging voice is, um, can I win? And you have to keep pushing that back and saying, of course I can win. And um, obviously I didn't win, but I, I knew I could, and I know why I didn't. Um, you just keep you just keep going. Yeah, and you yeah. push that. And again, having having friends who are standing behind you, who are very supportive, who are raising money for you, who travel around the state with you, makes a huge difference. Yes, that because means. they're saying to you, they're validating you every day, every minute. They're saying to you, "Of course you can do it." And I remember uh, one one woman who had been a supporter of mine um, saying to me you know, you're too intimidating. You need to wear granny dresses. I was running for governor, for heaven's sake. <laughs> you're like, Women really? running for governor, you don't wear granny dresses. And when I said no, she, she left my team. She went over to my opponent. Oh, my goodness. So that happened. That's but interesting. I had all of these wonderful, wonderful people around me, men and women, and my family, who said, you can do it. You're the best one out there. You're the most qualified. You're going to win this. Yeah. So it's really, really important to surround yourself with people who, oh. who affirm you, who believe in you, um, who are ready to tell you when you're screwing up, um, but also are there to say, beautiful job. Yeah. Yeah, because those affirmations affirmations can really hush that inner voice that 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 shows up for us. And then the reason I ask that question is is because so many people that I know, so many women that I know, are stepping out and they're doing bigger things, but they get these little gnawing questions like, "Ooh, can I do this?" And um, it is having people around you and support around you that keeps you moving through when those moments pop up. So um, I like I like Absolutely. this. I love it, the stories of from the trails of, uh, of your campaign. That's good. There, there, every, every person who's ever run man or woman has plenty of stories of betrayal. Oh yes. <laughs> and you just get past it. You get past that and you find the ones that are not, that are true to you and that are loyal to That's you. Right. You, you know, it's like any time when you're taking a big risk, you know, you find out who your real friends are. Yes, yes, yes. So, Let's talk about your life as Colorado's Lieutenant Governor. When you think back to that role, what are you most proud of? Well, a couple of things. Um, the first thing is that a Lieutenant Governor basically doesn't have a job unless the Governor gives you things to do. So I, I suppose lesson number one is you want to make sure that you get along well with the Governor and the Governor really trusts and values you. So um, Roy Warmer and I had a very good relationship, um, and he asked me to do a couple of things. One was to take over a major school reform effort that, that started in the governor's office, was called School to Work, and it was extremely successful, and it was successful because I hired the right person to get it going and run it, but it was very, very successful. I think that the two issues that were most difficult and that I'm really, really proud of are the cleanup agreements on Rocky Flats and the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. Rocky, Rocky Mountain Arsenal was considered to be one of the most dangerous and polluted places on earth. And people had been fighting literally for 20 years about what to do about it. It was full of 
terrible chemicals and um, mustard gas and unexploded bombs and other ordnance and so on. And it um, and that was the one where it took us about six months, and we focused on solving the problems. And now it's a wildlife reserve. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, really proud of that. We did it way under budget. Um, at one point, one sticking point was um, water for Adams County. And I flew to Washington and talked to the Secretary of the Army and said for $50 million, the Army had to pay for their share of the cleanup for $50 million. We can tie Adams County into Denver water, which they want to do, and you will have a much cheaper cleanup because you won't be fighting this thing in court. And they did. Um, And so we solved problems just any way we could and got as many people on board as we could. So I'm very proud of that. Nice. Rocky Flats had 100 buildings that were terribly contaminated with plutonium, which is an extremely dangerous uh, substance. And uh, we worked with local governments, we worked with water districts, we worked with citizens' organizations, all the politicians, um, the Department of Energy, which was responsible for the cleanup, the contractors, and so on. And again, in about six or eight months, we had an agreement. And here, here, so here's another reason why it's so important to have women in public office. The uh, Secretary of Energy at that time was um, an African-American woman. And she looked at the organization at Rocky Flats, and she went way down to the organization. She found an African-American woman, um, nuclear engineer, who, and she, she appointed her to run the Rocky Flats cleanup. So Jesse and I spent a great deal of time talking through how we would solve the problems and how we would get all of the warring factions on board she was focused on that, and I was focused on that. And again, we have uh, a wildlife reserve. All of the buildings are gone, and the water, um, the water contamination will always be there, but we have it protected. So I'm very proud of having both these horribly dangerous and polluted places cleaned up and now wildlife refuges in the city, in the larger metro area. Yes, that's great. That's fantastic. And, you know, one thing that struck me as you were telling this story is the, the, the fact that the woman reached down, reached down and pulls someone up through the ranks, right? That, that women helping women. And women, women look for women. Women help women and women look for women. And it's amazing how many extremely capable and talented women get lost in an organization where there are no women at the top. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why is that so important? What's, I mean, you know, why, I guess, why do women do that? And what's, what's the natural um, reasons why we do that? How, how women reach out to each other and support each other? And why is it so important? Well, first of all, women are half our talent pool. Right. And we uh, cannot be competitive in a global economy without having, uh, without using all of our talent. So it's a total waste not to have women working at the level, being creative at the level where they can be. Um, So I think that's really important. Part of what happens is that it's harder for women to um, ask for a raise, to ask for a promotion. If If you only see men at the top, men on the board, uh, men on the executive committee, 
it's pretty hard to see yourself there. And some women do, but women tend to get um, mistreated is the wrong word. They're, they're not viewed as team players if they ask for raises and ask for promotions. They're supposed to wait. And I think that's really changing. I think women are beginning to say, I'm ready, here I am, and I am very good, and I want to be promoted to use my talents for the benefit of this organization. But that's just been going for the last maybe five or 10 years, maybe not even that long. Yeah, and I think what's really exciting what I'm seeing now is the the financial metrics when when there are you know more balanced there's more balanced equity and, you know, who's at the leadership team, who's at the board of director levels and what's happening in those companies financially is they're performing better because there's, they're making, they are, they have better, more diverse um, conversations and um, they're being able to be more strategic because there, there's a more diverse view of the opportunities in the, in that company. So it's really exciting to see, the, the metrics that are following that. And um... I, think it's, I think it's extremely important. Um, having said that, I have served on 10 different corporate boards. The only boards where there were a lot of women were the ones um, that we started with the Women's Bank. Mm-hmm. And the, all the other boards, I was the only woman until I insisted that we bring in more women. Nice. So it just, and it wasn't the people were anti-women. It's just yeah. that they didn't think about it. Exactly. It never occurred to them that exactly. there would be women out there who would bring a point of view that might be different and that would be valuable to the company. Yes. And, I, and I, I, I'm excited about that change that is starting to shift. Even, even if it is slowly, I think well, um, in the coming years, we're going to see that shift take place much more quickly than in the past. I hope so. It's been way too slow. Yes. <laughs> way too slow. Yes, yes, yes. So what did you learn about leadership and all your years of politics? I mean, what are some of the big leadership ahas that you had? Well, so many. Um, just a couple. I think um, part of leadership is stepping forward when something needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that now when when I was talking about the sort of move towards grassroots politics. We're really seeing that now. But when you see something that needs to be done, don't you can't just wait for somebody else to do something about it. You have to step up and say, I'm going to do it. Um, I think another piece of leadership is consciously looking for opportunities and taking advantage of them. So um, if you see a chance to work with somebody to solve a problem, take take advantage of that opportunity. If you see an office where you believe either the incumbent is not doing the right job or you feel passionately about the issues that that matter to your community, run for that office. I I think the ways you become a leader are thinking about the opportunities and be thinking very strategically about how to take advantage of them. I think there are a couple of other things that are much more subtle that I've learned. I was on the school board for eight years and um, I became the person who was the synthesizer. I would listen. We had a very diverse board. We had uh, conservative Republicans to very liberal Democrats. We had atheists to devout Christians. It was a very, it was a seven member board, very different 
And what I found out I could do was to listen to what everybody was saying and find the commonalities in it. And then I could say, well, Joe, it sounds to me like you're saying such and such. And Mary, sounds to me like uh, what you're saying is very similar to what Joe's saying. Is there a way here that we can put those together? So I think leadership is also listening carefully to what other people are saying, understanding what it is that they want and need, and bringing those together. There's another sort of subtle thing, um, and I think women are particularly good at this. It's putting people together who either share an interest and don't know it and don't know each other, or who could help one another. And I, that's something that I really believe in, that uh, whenever I meet two people or hear about two people who sound like they've got a shared interest or uh, want to solve a problem, I try to put them together. Nice. I think that is a part of leadership that's really important. Leadership doesn't have to be standing up there being grandstanding. Leadership is really getting problems solved. It's standing up when something needs to be done and saying, I'll do it. And I think um, it's also getting people, bringing in people with different points of view so that when you do come, when you do come up with a solution to the problem, it's a broad-based solution and it's one that most people can buy into. I love that, Gail. And I love to be able to step back and see the, the big picture of what's going on with all the different players sitting around the table and being able to see ways to connect and to um, shift conversations um, versus the grandstanding piece. I, I, I think that's, that's a tremendous viewpoint. It's really important. And I think then there's another facet to this. Um, I served a uh, little over a year as a U.S. ambassador to negotiate a treaty. And the first thing I had to do was to get a, a common position for the United States to take to this huge negotiation. Mm-hmm. So for the first time in this negotiation, I insisted that people not go around the U.S. delegation position to other countries and say, well, you support my position. I insisted that we have a common position. And there would be some very long nights when all of the players with different ideas would sit around the table. And I remember one night it was getting late and one person said, could we at least get some pizza? And I said, no, if we're hungry, we're going to get this done sooner. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's keeping people, if you're the person who is the recognized leader, it's keeping people at the table until they come up with an agreement. And it doesn't always work. Um, and I certainly had my failures in that also. But if you don't keep people talking, you're never going to get there. Yes. So I think you have a responsibility as a leader to get all the interested parties together and to keep them talking mm-hmm. and to keep proposing ideas until finally one of them clicks. That's an important one right now in, in today's political climate, right? Oh, really important. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, that's my way or no way is the way we're dealing with solving huge problems, both national and global. And it doesn't work. It yeah. doesn't work. Yes. I like that. So today you're doing a lot of work to help women get into office. Can you tell us more about the work that you're doing? Well, one of the things I'm doing as an organization um, that Judy Wagner mentioned before, and I started right after I lost uh, the governor's race, and so it was, we actually got it started in 2000, we decided that women were not going to win 
in large numbers or win at all until women supported women. And I even had women say to me, I'm a Democratic women say to me, I'm not going to vote for a woman for governor. A woman can't be governor. So we thought, okay, women have to be able to raise money to be credible. They have to be really, really good to be credible. They have to have lots of experience. So we decided that we would take one piece of it and we would get women to support other women financially. And initially we were just going to support women and money for governor, but there were very few. So we added in U.S. senators and we, we've been very successful. We now have um, 85, we call them sponsors, members of electing women. We now have 15 electing women chapters around the country called the Electing Women Alliance. We've raised uh, $2.5 million for pro-choice women running for governor in the U.S. Senate. And this is the first time we have had women in Colorado since we started. So it's always been women from around the country. And uh, we raised a uh, million three for Hillary. And now, just uh, last year, our Electing Women Alliance raised $2.5 for women running for office. Nice. So there are a co- couple of pieces here. One is we want women to win. And the only way women can win, given the way money plays in politics, just being brutally realistic, they've got to have the money to win. Right. Second thing is that the power in, in political money is in raising the money. Women have not been raisers. We've written small checks, but we haven't raised money. So we are now, for the last 20 years, women have been raising money, and it's what gives you access to the halls of power. And women need to have access to the halls of power because otherwise our point of view does not get heard. So we think it's really, really important. And then the third thing is women need to write big checks. I remember when I was running, I would see, I tell the story all the time, I would see a friend of mine, um, and I knew she was wearing a $5,000 suit. And I would ask her for $1,000, which was the maximum contribution. And she would say, oh, you know, I just can't afford that much money, but I can write you a $50 check. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And women have got to say, okay, I can write that check. I don't have to buy that $550 pair of shoes. I can write that check because that's going to help that woman win. And we want women to win. So we want women to step up, to take leadership, to raise money for other women, and above all, to get out and organize and support women running for office at all levels. Awesome. That's totally awesome. And you're also coaching women who are wanting to get into office. Is that true? Right, right. I talk, I talk to a lot of young women who want to run for office. Um, I encourage them to run, but there are also now a lot of organizations that train women to run, and I think that is very exciting. Emerge is one, um, Run, Vote, Lead, but there are a number of organizations that help women gain the skills they need to be successful in politics. And last year, in the municipal elections, uh, a number of young women from Colorado's Emerge class ran for local offices and won. And it was very exciting. Nice. So there's a lot of resources out there for women to really- A lot of resources out there. Yeah. And that's that's really great. So where can people learn more about your work and your organizations? About electing women? We have a website. Um, I can't tell you what it is, but it's Electing Women and the Electing Women Alliance. And um, it's, it's it's on the internet, obviously. So they can look there and find out more about what we're doing. Okay, and I'll post the link on the page for for the podcast as well so that people okay, can great. click through onto that. 
So this has been awesome. And the final question that I always close with at the end of these interviews is what three pearls of wisdom can you leave with our audience today? You've given us all kinds of great things to be thinking about, but this is, you know, more, you know, big, broader life perspectives. What are the three pearls of wisdom? Well, uh, I think women um, need to take risks, be willing to take a risk to push yourself out there, even when it's really scary, uh, because it's the only way you're going to move forward. Second is support other women. I tell women when I'm speaking to groups of women, never say anything bad about another woman, even if you disagree with her. You can disagree with her positions and her policies, but don't say anything bad about her. There are plenty of other people doing that. And that supporting other women also means when a woman's running for office or when you see somebody who would be really good in public office, ask her to run, write her a check, and help her organize. And then the final thing is never give up. Just never give up. Keep going. You can do it. Never give up. Awesome. Those are really good. And this has really been a, a joy. And I love what you're putting out into the world and how you are helping women right now. I think it's so critical, so important. So thank you for all you do, Gail. Thank you, Cammie. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, and congratulations again, and I hope to meet you next week. So I will hope to meet you next week. Okay, bye. Thanks, bye. I hope you liked this episode of Extraordinary Women Radio. If you did, please share this podcast with your own special tribe of women and help spread the love, the dreams, and the inspiration. Are you thinking about making the next bold move in your life? I invite you to take the Your Next Bold Move quiz at CammieGellner.com to find out how you can jumpstart a passionate and meaningful next chapter. You may also enjoy my book, Fire Dancer, Your Spiral Journey to a Life of Passion and Purpose, which is available on Amazon. In Fire Dancer, you will become intimately connected to your heart's calling and build the courage and resiliency to ignite your what's next. I'd love to hear from you on any of my social media channels. I'm on both Facebook and Twitter, and the links are available on my website. Till next time, my friend, listen to your heart, follow your dreams, and be you.